This is the second part of our introduction to Jeremiah as we look in the next couple of weeks into his life and what he has to teach us as disciples. And I want to start with reading uh, Philippians 2 verse 12. It's after that passage that talks about Jesus um, being obedient to the point of death. And then it says that we should, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he's trying to say to them, you need to continue to obey, to follow Jesus and to work out your um, faith, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, obedience was the substrata, if you like, of the life of Jesus. He was obedient to his father all the way through. And if you see in John's gospel, it says he only did what he saw the father doing. He only spoke what he saw the father, heard the father saying. There is that sense and he was obedient right the way through his life, all the way to the point of death. And it's that obedience and love that characterizes. And Paul saying to the Philippians, that obedience ought to characterize and continue to characterize who you are as faithful believers, as followers of Jesus. I want to just read briefly from the epilogue of Dallas Willard's book on the celebration of the, the spirit of the disciplines. He quotes from the Living Bible, John 14, verse 21, which says, The one who obeys me is the one who loves me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. And because he loves me, my father will love him, and I will too, and I will reveal myself to him. And then Willard goes on to say this, Obedience would be the sign of love, as love was the sign of discipleship, as we'd seen in John 13, verse 35. If you love me, you would do, what I, you would do as I please. Instead, he says, he is teaching that obedience and love go together. Because love alone stays to find the way to obey. Now, love and obedience are in, 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 inextricably linked. But then he goes on to say that, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm talking about Jeremiah here, but stay with me for a second. And he uses a, a really interesting Greek word, which I'm not going to try and pronounce because all the Greeks will laugh at me. But it has two different meanings. The first meaning is this. It means to get moving, to get going with something, to do something, to work out. A little bit like working out at the gym. And um, Plato used the word in ancient Greek to talk about either our spirit or our bodies being trained by a practice to make them usable. So I, I walk, I do exercise in order that my body is useful to do certain other things. I'm fit so that I can do something else. It also means, this Greek word that is used in terms of workout, it means to reduce something to small pieces to make it usable. And Aristotle uses the word to talk about the way that we chew food to make it usable to our bodies. And why is it interesting that this word is, is the word that Paul uses, is because this double meaning, when it talks about our salvation, working out our salvation, he's not saying to the Philippians that you need to work out what your salvation is. They, they were already saved. But what he is saying to them is that 
our salvation, this, this incredible, rich gift that we have been give, given needs to be broken down into smaller parts to make it usable so that we can assimilate it and make it part of our very existence so that we become in turn useful in the way that we live and, and move and are human beings in the world that we are inhabiting. And Jeremiah is going to help us with that. And I hope over the next weeks that where we take parts of Jeremiah, it will break down to certain things that will that, that will nourish us, that will train us, almost like in the gym, that we will be fit in the times that lie ahead. It's a little bit like uh, being given a huge credit of um, 100,000 pounds and going down to um, a restaurant somewhere if they were open that you could say i've got a i've got a hundred thousand pounds in the bank they're going to say well that's no good to me you ne it needs to be broken down into smaller parts and you give them a smaller part um for the meal that you're about to eat poor example but you get the idea and then what is this thing with fear and trembling work out your salvation with fear and trembling well the fear and trembling is a basically a technical term that Paul uses here. Um, he used it bef uh, of a servant before a master. He uses it before he goes to Corinth in different places in the New Testament. But he's he's using it a, as a word that in a, in a sense is like awe, an attitude before God that is one of reverence and respect and humility. As an as a servant stands before the master in humility, we stand before God expectant of what God is going to do for us and in us and through us. So working out our salvation is not a matter of, in essence, uh, some energetic thing that we have to do. Yes, there is a part that we play, but it's this constant readiness that we have before God of what he's going to do in and through us. And... Jeremiah is going to help us to make our salvation, our understanding of what God has done for us, usable. Break it down into small parts and make it usable so that in our everyday life, by standing before God in dependence on him, he will work through us. Now, going back to Dallas Willard again, he, he made a lot of what being there's so much written about being a disciple he wrote about being the cost of of non-discipleship and he says if we are not disciples it costs us peace it costs us a life penetrated through by love it costs us the faith to see god's overriding presence and glory through all the ordinary things in life hopefulness power abundance all those things he says if we are non-disciples we lose all of that and we live gray lives, as it were. Now, being a disciple, being an apprentice of Jesus back in the day when he was here was somewhat more simple and clear. So he calls Peter, for example, and Peter goes with him and he knows what he's doing and he knows what the cost is. Because in Mark 10, he says, Peter says to Jesus, look, we've left everything and followed you. Being a pilgrim, being a disciple now is uh, the mechanics are very different. The priorities and intentions may be the same, but 
for those of us who desire, as we've read from Philippians and, and in the other part of the introductory uh, talk in Colossians, it's being someone who is systematically and progressively rearranging the affairs of our lives to bring them into order so that we can follow Jesus. I want to read just briefly again from um, the message from Philippians. A passage I've also read in the past because it's one of my favorites as well. I've got many favorites. Yes, says Paul, this is from about verse 9. All the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. Now, I've said this before, and um, this is Paul, not me, but he uses a Greek word there, skubala, which is literally everything that has gone before. Everything else I once thought was was so important and is now insignificant is dog dirt, essentially. I've dumped it all in the in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. That's that's the thing that is of primary concern for Paul. I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his sufferings and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it, says Paul. Now, Jeremiah is going to help us with that kind of energetic thing of being able to look our lives squarely in the face, to take what is insignificant and what is um, non-essential and throw it away, to die to those old things in other language and to grasp and to hold on to those things that will help us to live in the intense, vivid presence of Jesus. That's what we hope over the next couple of weeks with Jeremiah. And so in introduction, I want to just read a brief passage from chapter 12 in Jeremiah. Again, we're not starting at the beginning, we're starting in the middle. And he says, righteous you are, Lord, and I will plead my case with you. Indeed, I want to discuss matters of justice with you. And so Paul is saying, and, and the more modern translations are saying, yeah, God, I understand who you are. I know that you are just. I know that you are righteous. But there's a couple of matters that I want to just bring to your attention. There's a few things, a few questions I just want to put on the plate. And then he says, why do the wicked prosper? And he, he has a whole list of questions from the end of verse 1 all the way through to verse 4. Then there's a bit of a brief break and God responds to him. And he says to Jeremiah, if you have run with footmen and they have tired out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how, would you, how will you run when there is a forest in front of you? The more modern translation says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, 
how will you compete with horses? If you can't keep your wits about you in the calm, what's going to happen when troubles break loose? And Jeremiah essentially is the one who is, because God confronts him, he's got these questions. He says, God, I know, I know exactly what you like, but I still don't understand. I have questions that need to be answered. And God comes back to him and said, you know, Jeremiah, the race that you've been running up until now, if you can't stand, if you can't, if you can't run with what you had now, then how on earth are you going to manage when the going gets tough? That's essentially what he's saying. And the reason to bring this up is because why is this important? Is that we have, as I said in the, in the other part of the introduction, we have in the church become such tourists where we want the highlights. We don't want the difficult bits. We don't want to, we want to stay in the air-conditioned bus and just take the nice pieces home with us. Um, and we we have lost our understanding of what it means to be disciples, pilgrims, apprentices, and we end up in a sense with a kind of celebrity culture where um, instead of saints who are substantially towering figures, we've become cardboard cutouts of our culture. And so um, what Jeremiah is saying, what God is saying to Jeremiah, and what I think he's saying to us, is that you can't have secondhand living. You can't live vicariously by watching TV reality shows or um, getting excited for a football or a rugby match on TV. You have to be a participant. And the participation in life is often not pleasant. It's difficult. It's hard. Sometimes it's just mundane and routine and very boring. But that's the, that's the point, is that if you're on a tourist bus, you never are actually rooted in the place. And you cannot, in those circumstances, grow to maturity. And so, um, Jeremiah is a place where we can find some of the answers, I think, to what it means to be a disciple in our current lives. Part of it is also this, that um, even though so much of life looks unheroic um, and some of the men and women who followed um, God have been, well, we see all their warts and bumps, don't we? Uh, Abraham lied, David was um, far from being um, a good boy, Jacob cheated, Moses murdered, and, and the list goes on until it comes all the way up to you and I. We all have feet of clay. And the, that's, that's actually the point, is Jeremiah, when we, we look at Jeremiah and the struggles that he had, there are struggles. And the reality of it is that as we understand, as, as it gets broken down for us, we are able to grasp what's actually going on, what is possible for those of us who have lives and feet of clay. Jeremiah, as I said previously, is, is a man who, who spoke and lived what he actually believed. And through all the different things that he faced, um, he was a man who was good, who, who followed God um, and I think lived fully. And that's what we aim at. We want to be fully alive to God and live in the abundance of God's life. I just want to quote something as I close now and say that 
Um, this is from um, a Czech philosopher who died in 1978 as a martyr in what was going on in Czechoslovakia at that stage. I can't pronounce his name, but he says, he wrote a book, God is not dead yet. And he says this, the terrible threat against life is not death, nor pain, nor any variation of the disasters we may try to protect ourselves from. The terrible threat is that we might die earlier than we really do die, before death has become a natural necessity. The real horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years. What he's trying to say is that some people just give up on life. They live lives that are just flat. It's almost as if they flatline, even though they're still breathing. We want to live lives like Jeremiah that are robust, exciting, energetic, in the midst of whatever's going on around us. And yes, he had feet of clay. Jeremiah struggled with so many different things. He, he, he wasn't perfect. But he does help us in our quest to be disciples, pilgrims, to understand what it means to, to run with horses and to, and to be able to continue when the troubles actually are striking us. So over the next few weeks, we're going to dig deeper into Jeremiah and hopefully he will be able to lead us in what it means to be contemporary followers of Jesus.